Well, thank you, Katie and Megan Squared. I know you guys love being referred to that way, um, but man, I'm really, I am so encouraged by our young people here and by, um, by both Megan Zimmerman and my daughter Megan Rogers as well. Um, you guys, they have volunteered their time um, for this work, and to see them both in action is really pretty cool. Um, so if you see them, kind of give them a, give them a little, uh, I don't know, something <laughs> that's meaningful to you. Now, this morning, um, I don't know if I introduced myself, so I'm going to introduce myself. Tim Rogers, lead pastor. Did I say that already, guys? Boy, we're starting off really well this morning. Um, you're joining us in the last part of a series this morning, and um, I'd kind of like to pull up my chair to your table this morning a little bit. Um, if you can imagine, I'd love to just sit with you for a minute if I could, and, and I would love to be able to sit with you and ask you this question. Um, how are you holding up? How are you doing with everything? Um, as I look back in the past year and a half, um, you don't need me to recount all of what's gone on in the past year and a half for all of us. And I'd love to hear you tell me your story about how you're holding up through everything. And I would, I would bet, I would bet that as I were to listen to you, no matter what side of anything you're on, no matter what your view of anything that we've collectively experienced, I would bet that no matter if you find yourself right, left, up, or down, or all turned around, <laughs> almost sounds like Dr. Seuss for a minute, that I would bet that we share and have shared a collective trauma over the past year and a half. Just the very fact that there have been sides and there has been conflict, and there has been relational pain and spiritual questions and distance from people and distance from God, that no matter where you are, that we share this pain and trauma together. I would bet there's a part of that in this room and a part of that in your story, and I know it is in mine. And so I'd love to ask you, how are you holding up? How are you doing? And as we talk, I could imagine, because I've been able to talk to some of you about this already, that the people, um, one of the things that I have found inspiring about our, our human response of the past year and a half is that almost everybody, almost everybody has said in one way, shape, or form, we don't want to just, quote unquote, go back to the way things were. Why go back to normal when normal wasn't so awesome to begin with? Whatever the context for that conversation is that they mean. And I think what's underneath that is this realization in our humanity, in our failed and flawed humanity, that we really struggle sometimes to keep our edge and to stay sharp in even the commitments that we want to make. It's kind of like the frog in the kettle syndrome, right? That sometimes we make commitments and then we realize over time that we've really fallen into a lethargy or a lethargy, kind of a uh, just muddling through, whether that's personally or in our community. Here's what I think, and I'll put it this way, that, that we can lose our edge slowly and realize it even slower. And sometimes the trauma of the past year and a half is enough to help us kind of wake up to, shoot, like... My relationship with God wasn't where I thought it was. My involvement in this, all of a sudden, because we've had to have this kind of response, it's really changed 
me again. And I've been woken up through pain and through hurt and through whatever. It's been hard, but shoot, like I don't know if I want to go back to what was before, whether that's personally or whether that's in our community. I know for me, as I reflect on this, here's one of the things I realize that, and I think about my edge, maybe your edge, I think not just personally, but also in our own community. I've come to realize again, as I've watched our community's response, you know, I've realized and I've seen many of you show up on Food Fridays at the factory ministries and provide what has been thousands, thousands, I would say by now tens of thousands of pounds of food delivered to our community. You have been a part of that. You have delivered that. And the pandemic has showed us that people need food. And if maybe you're like me, where I don't struggle with food, it may not look like it, but I, I, like I'll just go to the pantry if I need food, like I seem to have enough. But we have come to realize that many in our community, to the tune of tens of thousands of pounds of food, every day, every week at the factory, delivering food to our community. And you know what? I'm going to be honest with you. I've come to expect that as normal. I've come to accept it. We will have food insecurity in our community. That's like the sky is blue. And then I stop and think, should I be okay with that? Should Christians be okay with that? Is that an edge that I have allowed to be sanded down and be softened? Like, are we cool with the fact that our poverty rate in our community has grown in my lifetime, it was about 35%. Now it's north of 60%. Am I okay with that? Am I okay with the fact that about four out of 10 third graders cannot read at reading grade level right now in our community? Am I okay with that? Or have I lost my edge and don't necessarily care and have just come to accept the changing dynamics of our own community, the pandemic? And our response is wherever you are with all of that, I don't care about that right now. But it has raised the issue that there are things in our community that over time we can lose our edge to, and we're even slower to realize that we've lost it. Just like sea glass, it's beautiful. But over the time, as the tide rolls in and the sand wears down that edge, it's gone. And I wonder, as I look around in our community, I look around in my own personal life, what are the edges that maybe I've lost that I can't see? And maybe like you, I don't want to go back to normal. I don't want to go back to a life that doesn't have that edge. It doesn't sit around and say, you know what, I'm not cool with that, right? Like, I don't want to be in a community that accepts this as normal. It says, this is right and good. It's just going to be the way it is. There will always be poverty among you, and so just get used to it. Yes, the poverty rate will be high. It's probably going to keep going that way. Yes, there will be economic disparity. Yes, kids will have a problem being raised. Yes, people will not know how to be discipled because they can't read their Bibles because they can't read. That's just going to be normal. And this is a human problem, and I think it's a problem that I have, and I, and I know it's a problem they had in the Scriptures. And as we finish this series called Stronger this morning, this is the last installment of Stronger, we've been looking at the people in the Old Testament in the book of Nehemiah who have kind of reestablished or reset their own identity as a, as a nation through an incredibly difficult time. The analogy and metaphor, I think, is pretty strong to see where they've come from and what we've come through. Certainly, we're in a different situation, but I think there's much to learn about not only how do we get stronger as a community, but how do fundamentally we see our God as stronger than all of the circumstances that we face. That's been my hope.
And so in this final installment, I want to invite you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 13 if you have a Bible with you. If you don't, there's one in the chair near you where you can just open it up on your phone. Nehemiah 13, it's the last chapter in the book of Nehemiah. You can find Nehemiah by finding the Psalms are kind of in the middle of your Bible, and then you can back up a couple uh, pages, basically, and you'll find Nehemiah. But Nehemiah 13, the last chapter, is where we're going to be. And this morning, if you are with us regularly, I will often... Uh, read a few verses and then comment on them and read a few and comment. This morning we're going to spend a little bit more time just me reading and us together sitting in the text of Scripture and, and letting Nehemiah 13 in a way speak for itself. Before I do that, I just want you to know the context of what we're jumping into. If you were with us last week, you know this. If you weren't, not a problem. The context, by the way, we are coming off of a moment in the, in the story of Nehemiah where the people of Israel had just had a big, I'm going to call it a come to Jesus moment. They just gathered together as a people and were like, hey, we are reestablished, the wall is built, the law is being read, people are crying, they're on the ground, they're celebrating, they're having festivals they didn't have for a whole generation or two, and everyone comes together and they say, we are going to make a commitment with a curse and an oath, I will never, we will never never depart from God again. We will honor the house of God here. We, of all people, have learned our lesson. We are all in. All our cards are on the table that we are committed to God. And then Nehemiah goes away for about a decade, about 12 years. He goes away, and then we pick up the story 12 years later. That's where we are now in Nehemiah 13. So we've had some time pass. So 12 years later from where we were last week, so maybe your week has already felt like that anyway, but this is actually where we are in the text. 12 years later, Nehemiah comes back, and he encounters a people who have allowed a slow drift, and their edge is gone. And what we're going to see and what I'm going to read this morning are multiple points in which we will look at the nation of Israel, where they have gone from, I'm all in, I'm all committed to, in multiple points, they, they are far from in, and they are far from committed, and it did not happen overnight. It was a gradual, slow burn that happened. So Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning at verse 4, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. I will stop here and there, by the way. Anyway. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God, and he was closely associated with Tobiah. If you know Tobiah, by the way, he's one of our, um, one of our villains in the story. He's a bad guy. He's the one who tried to stir things up against the rebuilding of the wall. And so this priest in Israel was closely associated with the bad guy, Tobiah. Verse 5, and he had provided him, Tobiah, with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, this is Nehemiah saying, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon the first, I had, or king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked permission, and I came back to Jerusalem. And here I learned about the evil thing that Eliashib had done by providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased. This is funny. Just, just imagine this. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Now, that's pretty, pretty wild, isn't it? Now, I know some of you have told me, because you're involved in like the self-storage unit world, and some of you have told me this, and I've actually been involved with people who have had their stuff in a self-storage unit for too long and don't pay rent, okay? At some point, maybe it's a, even a year later, if you don't pay rent on that thing, all your stuff gets thrown out, 
I mean, literally, onto the sidewalk. If it rains, it rains, whatever. This is what Nehemiah does to Tobiah. He comes in, he's like, listen, hey, Elisha, the priest, you've given our enemy space in God's house as a storage unit. What is wrong with you? And he just takes all the stuff and throws it out. Like, how is this in line with, we're going to stay committed to God, and we're also going to give an enemy a place to store all this stuff in the temple? Good plan. Verse 9, I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is, and if you were here last week, this phrase is exactly what they promised to do. They said, we will not neglect the house of our God. That was their exact language. And Nehemiah asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. What was happening is they, as a people, they decided we are no longer going to give, we're no longer going to support, we're no longer going to fund or resource the people or the things that make worship a priority for us as a nation. This happens over 12 years. They begin to gradually draw down their interest in resourcing it. As they're rebuilding their homes, it's like, well, we've got a couple extra bucks. Maybe we're just going to have somebody over instead of supporting the worship of God. And so uh, they begin to draw down, and the Levites, they need to eat. And so they leave the temple, and they just go back to their fields. And so now the worship of God in the house of God is being neglected because over time as a people, they're just like, it's just not all that important. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens in 12 years. But it's a slow burn where Nehemiah just comes at them. He's like, guys, why are you neglecting the house of God? And then it goes on, verse 12. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. And I put Shelemiah the priest and Zadok the scribe and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms. And I made Hanan, son of Zacher, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. He needed those people. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies of their brothers. And then this is the first time of three that Nehemiah says this. And I want to ask this question coming up. So I want to give you a heads up. I want you to begin to think about this idea of what Nehemiah is driving after. He says in verse 14, he's asking God, he's saying, remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. Nehemiah is asking God to remember him for this. And I'm going to ask you in a little bit, what do you want to be remembered for? This is the first time Nehemiah says, he's like, God, I want you to remember me for this. And when we ask that question, we're actually establishing vision and casting a future in our own mind of what our life could be and what we want it to stand for so that we don't lose an edge. It's not just a selfish desire for legacy. It is a personal vision statement to say, this is what I want to be remembered for, and it helps us rally all of our energies around what we do indeed want to be remembered for. And Nehemiah is very explicit. He says it in verse 14, remember me for this, O my God. Verse 15, in those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. 
Men from Tyre who had lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing desecrating the Sabbath day? This is crazy to me because these are the same people. These are the children of those who had been in exile. These are the children, their parents would have been taken away from Jerusalem and their grandparents were taken away from Jerusalem and they were set aside. They were put away, if you will, from the city for 70 years. And now the, the kids or the grandkids, the next generation are like, yeah, I heard stories about how my parents and grandparents were disobedient, but it's cool. God is good with me on the Sabbath doing something I know he doesn't want me to do. And so we're going to do it. As I sit here, and maybe as you sit here, you're like, man, you lost your edge. <laughs> but it happens slowly, doesn't it, over, over time? I think about this when it comes to eating, right? Like, I love eating sweets. It's a problem for me, which is why I ride bikes so I can eat. I say that all the time. I ride so I can eat. But listen, if I, if I ate a whoopie pie or two and all of a sudden gained 30 pounds, right? I'd be like, ah, I probably need to pull that back. But I don't gain 30 pounds just right away, right? Also, last week I said I don't floss until I have to go to the dentist, right? Confession time for me this morning. But if I didn't floss and then all my teeth fell out the next day, do you think I would floss? You better believe I would floss, right? But the amount of time between the cause and the effect can be so long sometimes that we just think it's not that important, right? Like I'll have another whoopie pie or two or I won't floss for a little while because I did something, but the effect is so long in coming, it actually tells me it doesn't matter. And this is where these people are. Like, well, I don't know, I guess we could probably sell something on the Sabbath. I mean, it's the only day they're really coming through town, and I can just sell a little grain here, and then maybe just a little bit more, and there's been no lightning bolt. There's no Babylonian army coming in. Like, I guess it's okay. And over time, we rationalize and rationalize. One of my profs, Howard Hendricks, used to say, when we, as we get older, um, we don't necessarily become more holy. We just become smarter sinners. Um, we can learn to rationalize our behavior uh, in a way, because we see the distance between our behavior and the effect of it. Verse 18, Nehemiah asked the same question I'm asking here. He said, well, didn't your forefathers do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity upon us in our city? Like, you're doing the same thing. Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. So when evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. And I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now he's starting to push a, push a little bit, putting a little bit of muscle behind his words. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. They're tailgating. They're waiting to be the first people in line. Verse 21, but I warned them and I said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. I don't think to pray for them for healing. I think this is the other kind of, I'm going to lay hands on you if you do this one again. So from that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. And then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. And then Nehemiah, again, vision statement, remember me for this also, O oh my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Again, remember me. This is what I want to do in my life. Remember me. This gets even worse. Verse 23, moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, 
Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and didn't know how to speak the language of Judah. Now, let me ask you this question. If, if your children can't speak the language in which you worship your God, how will they worship your God, <laughs> right? Like, if they can't speak your language, how can they understand the cultures and the means in which we communicate our worship with God? And so what Nehemiah is seeing is that an entire generation of children are being led away from the worship of Yahweh. This makes him very angry. Verse 25. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I just want you to imagine that for a minute. Sit in the weirdness of that, if you will. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a religious leader? He's a governor of Judah too, right? But he's clearly a leader of the people. Can you imagine the news story on that one? Hey, Sunday morning at Grace Point, half the men left bloodied and, you know, pastor beat up and in intensive care because he wasn't strong enough to take everybody, but took a few, you know, taking names and number. I mean, seriously? That's, that's what Nehemiah did. He's like, I'm going to call down curses on them. They probably wasn't very nice in what he said. And then I just beat some of them, right? I mean, I just beat them and I pulled out their hair. I made him take an oath in God's name, and I said, you're not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like this that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? And among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you two are doing the same, doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joliah, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was also son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. Sanballat was another bad guy. And I drove him away from me. And he says, remember them, oh my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. And so I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them their duties, each to their own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. And then he finishes with this statement again, remember me with favor. Oh my God, remember me with favor. Because these are the things that I want to not lose my edge on. These are the things that I want, and you look back on in my life, I don't want to ever lose this stuff. Now think about Nehemiah's story and the story of the people in the nation of Israel. To me, it's very evident. It's the frog in the kettle for them. It's the fact that we lose our edge slowly and we realize it even slower. It was only a decade, 12 years. And these people went from we're all in and committed to marrying other people of different faith, walking kids away from God, giving up on the temple worship, prioritizing their own economic gain over the care of God's house. I mean, it was, the scope of what they did in 12 years was really profound, considering they just came from exile. And I think about Nehemiah and who he is, and I think, you know, Nehemiah's a reformer, right? He's a reformer. He comes and he reforms the people, he challenges the people, he's beating people up, he's pulling hair out, he's giving vision of what could be, he's a reformer. And I think about Nehemiah in light of the Christian experience. I think, you know what, I, I think, and you can be the judge of this too, but I think that, that Christians come in the long line of reformers, that I think God is a God who reforms. He reforms me and he reforms you. That I think I go all the way back to Abraham, to Moses, to David, each of them reformed in their own way. 
They reformed how a nation thought about God. They reformed how worship was done. I think about Paul. I think about Peter in the New Testament. People who reformed the way that we even approach God. People who were very direct, who talked um, and led in hard and confrontational ways. Think about John, even James, the brother of Jesus, who, who was a reformer. When it was on the table early in the book of Acts, when the early church was being formed, and James had to lead the discussion on the question of how much should Gentile believers need to become like Jews. He basically made the statement. He said, don't make it hard for them to come to faith. Like, we're not going to make them become Jews to, to come to Christ. That's a reforming statement. That over and over, even Jesus himself in Luke chapter 4, when he came on the planet and when he delivered kind of his opening message to the people in Luke 4, you know what he said? He opened the scroll of Isaiah and then he began to speak and he said, listen, I've come to declare freedom from the oppressed, recovery of sight for the blind, healing, I've come to help the poor. These were words from Jesus' mouth in Luke 4. I'm like, I'm here to reform your world. I'm here to reform the way you see God and the way you interact with the people around you. I'm here to reform. And as Christians, I think we've constantly been in a line of incredible reformers. And I think I sometimes don't realize the significance of that. You know, over the years, not just in the biblical time frame, but also post-biblical, early Christian church, and later Christian church, that we've had people who have shaped, who have created what we see around us now. Christians are responsible for some of the very first hospitals in our world. Christians are responsible for some of the very first education of children in our world. Christians are the people who are caring for the needs of the least reached among us with great continuity. That if you call yourself a Christian today, you stand in the line of people who year after year after year, generation after generation after generation, have said, you know, there's something wrong here, and I'm not okay that it's wrong. I don't want to lose my edge. I want to be remembered for this. And here's what it is. I think of one of my favorites in this line is a guy named William Wilberforce. Many of you have heard of him. Not only was the slave trade abolished in much part because of what Wilberforce did in the 1800s in England, but also this is true. And if you've ever seen the movie Amazing Grace, you will know Wilberforce's story, but you may not know this, and I want you to understand this and feel this. In the 1800s in England, here's what was actually happening in England. For child labor, Poor kids as young as five and six were employed for 10 to 12 hours a day in dangerous conditions. Imagine that, five and six-year-olds working 10 and 12 hours a day. In uh, terms of alcoholism, it was rampant. The upper class was perpetually drunk, and believe it or not, members of parliament were drunk during legislative sessions. No comments about current politics. Members of parliament drunk during legislative sessions. Lower classes were drunk on gin. Believe it or not, get this, 25%, a full 25% of single women in London who were 16 years and old, 16 years and, or, or, the average age was 16, but a full one in four women, single women in London were prostitutes. Can you imagine that? Looking around, seeing any woman who's about 16 thinking, oh, there's, a, there's a decent likelihood she's probably a prostitute. That's just the way it was. Animal cruelty, bull baiting, bear baiting was common for the drunken crowds. Public hangings were common, followed by public dissections. I didn't even like to dissect a frog in high school, right? Now we're talking about public hangings followed by public dissections. Capital punishment for very little reason. Prison conditions were terrible. And Wilberforce gets into power. You know what he says? He's like, this isn't good. Right, like, God, in a way, I'm putting words in his mouth, but God, I want you to remember me for something, and here's what it is. I want to reform our manners, if you will. And I would argue that the reason that you sit here today, maybe I sit here today, and are offended morally with the thought, 
Can you imagine about a quarter of our women being prostitutes who are about 16 years old? Can you imagine that? Would you be okay with that? Of course, the answer is no. And why is your conscience tuned to that now? Why is it that you would care? I would argue it's because of Christians who have said that there have been something that isn't right, and Christians have set the pace on these things. Why is it that you have a reaction to children, five and six years old, working 10 to 12 hours a day? Why is it you think that's wrong? Is it just because we are on moral high ground? I would argue no, it's because Christians over the centuries have been reformers who have engaged society and said, this isn't okay. This doesn't reflect the image of God. And I'm not gonna lose my edge on this. Remember me, oh God, for this. That we stand in a line as people of Christian reformers over the years, like Nehemiah, like David, like Jesus, like Paul, like Wilberforce. And my question comes down then, of course, then to you and to me. That of all the stuff that we've been through in the past year and a half, if I could sit down at the table and ask you, how you doing? How you holding up? What do you want to not go back to? What has been provoked in you? What do you feel like has been unjust, unfair? Where do you feel like you have grown already spiritually that you want, don't want to go back to? Where is it as you look around our community, you look around your kids' friends, you look around at the things that have been stirred up that you wish wouldn't have been stirred up in the way they are, but now they're here. You say, you know what, maybe not all of this is bad. Maybe there's something here that I don't want to lose. I want to ask you two questions this morning as we wrap up this stronger series. The first question is this. What do you want your life remembered for? If you were Nehemiah, and he's very clear in the, the text three times, he says, God, remember me for this. Of all the things in the world that I've done, I want you to remember me for this. I want to ask you that question. What is it for you? If you again, if you call yourself a Christian and you say, you know, I'm following Jesus Christ. He's my Savior. And if you don't say that, I, listen, you're welcome here. I am glad, very glad you're here. I'm loving that you're part of the conversation here this morning or online listening or listening later to the podcast. We are loving to engage with you on where you're at in your journey now too, for sure. But especially if you call yourself a Christian, you know, what do you want to be remembered for, right? How much money is enough? How many vacations are enough? How much space is enough? How much is enough? Because at some point we can lose our edge and we're even slower to realize that we have lost it. What do you want to be remembered for? And I know because I look around the room and I'm like, this group that I see in front of me, and I can't see you online, I'm sorry, but this group in front of me is incredibly talented, gifted. Hospitality. <laughs> Organization. Leadership. Courage. It's the word I'm thinking for people. I'm reaching for a word. People are able to get through things and they, they fight to make it through, whatever that word is. Tenacious. There is an incredible gifting in this congregation and these people, and I just think, okay, how is it that God has gifted you? You may not be a reformer to the level of Nehemiah. You may not take an entire community and society and say, this is what I want to change, but you can do that with your children or with your family or with your friends with your grandchildren for the space that you're in right now. You can reform absolutely the way they see God, the way that you see God, the way that you hold a line, the way that you help all of us see what's true and keep us from falling into all of the things that so easily draw us down. What is it that you want to be remembered for in the world in which you are in right now? 
You don't need to be a super big political leader, a super big social leader. You don't need to be any of that. But in the world that you're in, what do you want to be remembered for right now? And the second question I want to ask is this. It's a little bit of a weirder question, so I'm going to preface it this way. And saying a number of years ago, I heard someone ask the question, it was in the context of a leadership conference, I believe, about what would your successor do in the role that you are in? So if you're a business leader or in a leadership role, you know that at some point you will no longer sit in that seat. If a successor comes into your seat, what would be one of the first two or three things that they would change or adjust or improve? And if you know that, or if your team can tell you that, then the question is why not deal with that now? What would your successor change if they were in your seat? And so I want to ask it this way, and it's this way. What would a reformer do if they took over your life? If someone you knew was a reformer, someone you knew could adjust and change and tweak and sharpen you in your life right now, and they had the ability to sit in your seat, walk through your week, engage with your family, hang out with your friends, see all of your habits, be clear on your values and your future, what would a reformer do, and what would they change if they took over your life right now? Because this is what the people in Israel experienced when Nehemiah came back 12 years later. For some of them, he beat it out of them. And for others, he walked them through it. But he was very clear about the priorities of worship of God and care for the people around him. So I want to ask you those two questions, because I still believe this is true, and I think you believe this is true too, that we can lose our edge slowly, but we realize it even slower. And I don't want you, and I know you don't want you, to lose your edge, to have it be a slow burn, to come to the end of life and be remembered for something, but not the important things. So friends, what do you want to be remembered for? You stand in a long line, Christians are reforming society and personal lives for the gift and benefit of our human health, but also for God's witness. The people at all times can come to know who God is through our lives and see the love and kindness of Christ. So what are you going to be remembered for? I know you want to be stronger, and I do too, and I think we'll, we will be a stronger people, not just by our resolve, but by a deep dependence on holding true to who God is, as a stronger God than all of our circumstances. What do you want to be remembered for? And what would a reformer do with your life? Thanks for tracking with us through this series. Love you guys. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, I thank you for the chance to be here this morning to kind of pull up to the table and sit together a little bit. Walk through some good and necessary questions because goodness we are all prone to lose our edge personally with our engagement with our community with how we lead our businesses with how we walk through our friend circles our friend groups at school we're prone to think that what we do doesn't quite matter doesn't quite have significance but I pray for our moms today I pray for our grandmothers I pray for our dads our grandpas who are engaging with children we're influencing the next generation or the generation after and maybe have forgotten the power of their influence. 
with the mundane humdrum of having to pack lunches and change diapers and walk kids through this and that and the dailiness of it without the clear sense of reward for what they're doing, I pray that you would reinvigorate them with vision, that they can be remembered as people who have led their kids well, who have influenced with intentionality and love the next generation. I pray for us as we engage our community as business leaders, that our businesses would have an impact in our culture, in our society, so that the things that we've come to live with, like our rising poverty rates, our rising illiteracy rate, that we could reduce, that our business will be remembered for something more, with greater intentionality. I pray for us as people who want to know you and walk with you, that you would give us the courage personally to allow you to, by your spirit, renew and revisit our own hearts and souls, that we can be drawn closer and closer to you personally. You could fan into flame again what was put in us from the beginning, that we could be people follow hard after you. So Father, we love you. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who's drawn us to you with great grace and forgiveness. And I pray that you give us the courage to ask some of these hard questions today and trust in your grace and guidance for direction. In Jesus' name we